This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and that can be found on page 851 in the Black Pew Bible. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless the reading of his word. I hope that um, video gave you somewhat of an overview of the theme of atonement in the scripture. Because here's, here's the message that I hope you're receiving as we've gone through this series called Move Closer. God is going to extreme lengths to pursue you and me to bring us back into a relationship with him. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is a story of God pursuing you and me because he desires us to be in his presence. But because of sin and evil in our own hearts and evil in the world, he um, has to provide a way that is absolutely just and reflects his holiness in order to bring us into that relationship. And so that's what we've been looking at. And so many of the the symbols that we will see here are unfamiliar to us in this day and age, but they are incredibly deep and rich in meaning. And I hope today as we look at this passage here in Hebrews that we're able to, to make some very strong connecting points about what that means, how to apply it to our lives, and also that we're able to truly see just how Great of links, God has gone for you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. So let's, let's take a look here at, um, at these verses. Now, when I was in school, I was unfortunately known um, quite a bit for my run-on sentences. And so when I read a passage like this one, I'm encouraged. Because everything that Rindy read in the original language, is one sentence. It's like, yes. It's like, of course, I usually didn't get very good grades for my run-on sentences, but the gospel tells an incredible story that is absolutely packed with meaning. So let's take a look at it. Let's break it down a little bit today. We're going to be a little more expositional than sometimes I, I go. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, therefore, now I'm See how far I got on that first part of the sentence? All right, now you know you've been around long enough, many of you, so when you see therefore, what should you ask? What's it there for? Yeah, exactly. So in order for us to really get the context, we need to back up a few verses. So I want you to back up to verse 16, so just a little bit before. And he says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, the passage here, if you see how it's laid out in your Bibles, um, it won't be this way on the screen, but if you have your Bible there, you'll see that it's set apart. It's indented a little bit because it's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, which what we, we looked at that passage a couple of weeks ago, and I told you that, at least it's my belief, that this is Jesus' ketubah. And ketubah is a Hebrew word. It is um, a prenuptial agreement for a, for a marriage where the groom promises all the things that he will do for his bride. And this is what he's saying. This new covenant, this covenant that we celebrate in Lord's Supper with the, with the wine and with the bread is a covenant where he is giving himself to us so that we can be drawn into his presence. And, and it ultimately points to a marriage relationship. That's how much God loves you. He wants you to be united with him. And so the first thing that we see here is based upon that, if we're going to then read the passage in, in verse 19, therefore, because of Jesus' ketubah, of, because of his covenant, because of his promise of what he will do or has done in this case, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence because of Jesus, not because of us, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that is open through the curtain that is through his flesh, let us draw near. So the first thing that we need to look at and understand is that we draw near because of Jesus' covenant, because of his promises and because of his work. He's already fulfilled those promises. Now, the imagery if you, if you understand history and we, and we understand um, the setting that this is in, it is incredibly beautiful because um, this is a picture of, of a marriage, of us being united with Christ. In, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, you would have a, a chuppah or a canopy under which the bride and the groom are married and it represents coming into the presence of the holy place, there in where God's presence dwelled because he wanted to be a part of that relationship, and he wants us to be a part of his relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's a gift, but it's pointing to something greater, that God wants you and I to be united with him, to have that kind of intimacy with him. Now, chances are, if I was to ask you and you were to give me an honest answer, many of us would say, I don't feel that kind of closeness to God. Here's what I want you to hear. You can. You can have a great intimacy with God that transforms everything about you, that transcends the circumstances you experience, that fills your heart and your life with joy even when you're in stress and under great difficulty. You can have a union with him that's what Christ came for. That's the goal of our faith. The goal of our faith is not heaven. The goal of our faith is to live united with God. That's why he came. That's what it's all about. Now, I found a really interesting article as I was looking at this that, that helped to... Um, maybe add a little different dimension to this in, in the story that God's been trying to communicate through these symbols, 
both in the sacrifice as well as in the marriage ceremony. This article um, is entitled, Reviving Biblical Wedding Customs in Preparation for the Third Temple. It comes out of Israel, and, and uh, it's a group of folks who are preparing um, for uh, a rebuilding of the temple at some point. I don't know when that will happen or if that exactly will happen, but they're preparing, and, they've, and one of the um, people that was interviewed did a great deal of research looking at the wedding customs of the temple especially looking at um, what is revealed in the Song of Solomon, which talks about God's love for us. And here's what one of the rabbis said. The relationship between God and Israel is described as an intimate relationship like between a husband and wife. Rabbi Trugman told Breaking News Israel, the Holy of Holies is sometimes referred to as Hader Hamatah, the bedroom. This is the place where God and man get together in the most intimate manner. Now, there's nothing that's weird about that. It's about sharing the, the most inner part of who we are with God. It's being loved and being fully known with incredible freedom in his presence. And in doing the research and looking at, they discovered that the proper crown that would be worn by a bride um, for a wedding ceremony there at the temple, outside the, the steps of the temple, was, was actually a crown that featured the walls of Jerusalem. It would be in gold. And I have a picture of it to put on the screen that goes with this verse. Because you see, even in the Old Testament, God was pointing to the future of uniting his people with him. And he says this in Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what God wants to do with us. When he calls believers in him, his bride, he's saying, I want to transform you because I want you to have the freedom to enjoy this union with me, to have nothing between you. I mean, the most beautiful part of marriage, uh, the marriage between my wife and I, is that um, I can be me with her, which is, trust me, is weird. And none of the rest of you would probably like it. But she, for some reason, because I don't know what, she's able to see past all the strangeness and all the accents and all the other weird things that I do. And she loves me anyway. And there's, there's a peace in her presence. That's what God wants for us, for each one of us individually. So that's a bit of the background because that's the covenant that we're entering. God wants us to draw near. And so that's part of the picture, the, the invitation when God says, I want you to draw near. And then he uses some other images that are really, really significant. The first one is it talked about a curtain, a curtain that is his flesh. And this refers to the curtain in the temple. In, and we've already looked in, our, in the past, we've looked at the tabernacle and the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was from, from the sanctuary. And it was a beautiful curtain that was made of, of red and purple and, um, and blue yarns. And then it was embroidered with golden threads in figurines of cherubim. And that 
curtain separated humanity from the dwelling place of God. It was there as a mediator for our protection. Now, in the tabernacle, it was much smaller, but when they built the temple, the second temple in particular, which would be the one that this is referring to, that curtain was huge. It was 30 meters high, okay? Way up there, all right? And so it's a curtain like that, but even thicker and beautifully ornate. And it tells us in that we're going to read this in just a moment, that when Jesus died, that curtain, that mediator that protected us from being consumed by God's holiness was torn from top to bottom. That's what this passage is talking about. It's a reminder that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus And let's look at how this curtain is torn. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. This is is the account of the death of Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this particular part of the event. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus is is doing there is he's quoting actually from Psalm 22. Because upon him, your sin and my sin was laid. And because God in his perfect holiness could not look upon our sin, he turned his back on his son. He forsook his son, the one he loved most, for you and me. And some of the bystanders, this is verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, centurion is Uh, the soldier who's in charge of the crucifixion. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. What an amazing, amazing event. And you you can see this curtain isn't 30 meters But for it to be torn from top to bottom can't be done by human hands. It's not like they had a hydraulic lift to lift somebody up there to pull it. It was God opening up that curtain saying, draw near. 
I've provided the right mediator where you can go through Jesus and come right into my presence. No longer will you be consumed. If you have faith in him, you can enjoy intimacy with me. God opened up a way And that's what it means in Romans chapter five where it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You're invited in. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior and want to follow him as your Lord, He's saying, come to me. I know how messed up your life is. I know how many mistakes you've made. I know how many times you've blown it. And guess what? I took all of that and I put it on Jesus. You can come. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to go through a whole bunch of of different acts. In fact, you don't have to get your act together. In fact, trying to get our act together is is something that keeps us from coming to Christ. He simply says, come as you are. Now, he's not going to leave us as we are, but he invites us to come as we are. That's the kind of love our God has for us. But he not only invites us in, he says, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to cleanse you. And that's what the next verses talk about. And the, symbol, the symbols that are here talk about how when you come to Christ, not only do you have access to God, but you're given his righteousness. Even though you and I, or at least certainly I, am far from righteous, God sees me through Christ and through his righteousness. Here's what it says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now that he who's promised is faithful is referring back to the promises that were in verses 16 through 18, where he says, I will Get them a new heart. I will write my truth, my love, my word upon their heart. I will make a way for them to come to me, and I will forget their sins and remember it no more. That promise God has kept, and he says now, draw near with a true heart. When you come to Christ, he changes you and I from the inside. We um, draw near to God, and he changes our heart This drawing near must be the motive for every action that we take when it comes to to God. It's more than just a formal prayer. Um, It's a continual coming to Christ, continually drawing near. Here's the great thing about God. There's so many things. But this particular one, I, I want you to try to get your mind around. God is infinite. Therefore, It will take all of eternity for you and I to discover all of his goodness, all of his wonders, all of his mysteries. 
You will never truly know everything. There will always be more to discover, and each discovery will be like the taste of honey. It'll just go, man, that was even better than the the last thing I discovered. That's what happens when we draw near, when we make him the deepest desire of our heart. But we must do it with sincerity. There can be no pretense God sees the innermost part of who you are and who I am. He knows what you think. He knows your motives. He knows everything about you. This is why David, in his great psalm of confession, Psalm 51, said, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He realized that in in order to have true cleansing, he had to be absolutely honest with the Lord and allow the Lord to examine every part of him. The most dangerous thing to you and I spiritually is pride. When you begin to think you have the answers, that you know more than others, spiritually you're in an incredibly dangerous place because pride will always serve as a barrier between us and God. He promises in his word, he says that God dwells in the high and lofty place and also with those with a lowly and contrite heart. He will dwell with you, but only if we humble ourselves before the Lord. So here he invites us in humility to come into his presence And we draw near humbly with confidence in what Christ has done, knowing that he gives us his transformed heart. That's what he was talking about when he says he'll write his word, his revelation on our hearts. He'll reveal to us who we are. But he goes on and he says, let us draw near to God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The imagery here is of our high priest Jesus sprinkling his own blood on our minds to renew them so that you and I are free from guilt. Now, here's here's the great thing that oftentimes we don't articulate very well in church. God does not want you to feel guilty. He came to save you and to transform you. And therefore, feelings of guilt, if you've come to Christ, if you've confessed your sins, guilt that you're feeling is not coming from God, it's coming from the enemy. Because the enemy is trying to keep you from moving closer to God. He's trying to make you think you need to do something about this instead of trusting what Christ has already done for you. Guilt is a barrier. He wants to sprinkle your mind clean with the truth of who he is and what he has done. Now, this is not an excuse to sin. Don't don't misunderstand me because that would be taking the grace of God and treating it in a way that is totally out of character with who he is and what he's done. But he doesn't call us to feel guilty. God brings conviction to draw us closer so that we'll remove the things, we'll confess the sins of our heart, of our life, of our attitudes, that we'll forgive others as God has forgiven us. He calls us to do those things again so that we can come closer. This is what it means when he he tells us in Colossians as well that he's taken our sin 
and he's totally taking care of it. Listen to what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, all of our sin, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your sins, if you've trusted Christ, are all in one place. They're on the cross. Every single, and the record of everything that you did wrong is nailed to the cross. He wants to transform your mind so that you can live like who he saved you to be. That, that's good news, just in case you, you didn't know it. What he wants to do is transform our minds, transform our thinking. Jesus will renew your thoughts. He's given you a new identity. You're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by Jesus' righteousness. Guilt is gone, and we are welcomed through Jesus into his presence and into union with him. Let us draw near. The next thing is, let us draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Well, the curtain talked about Jesus being our mediator. This part talks about Jesus giving us his righteousness, cleansing us completely. Um, removing the guilt and washing away. These are all images from the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement was the one day of the year that the high priest in Israel would enter into the holy place. He would go beyond the curtain, but in order for him to, to do that, and he would burn incense and he would sprinkle blood there at, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant and burn incense before it, but in order for him to do that, he had to be very, very prepared. He, first of all, had to take uh, a mikvah, which is a, a, a bath. Uh, it's a Hebrew word for bath. We're going to look at it in just a moment. That was a ritual cleansing that represented in his body what was supposed to be happening in his heart. The outward part was a reflection of the transformation of the confession that was happening inwardly. And, and actually, in preparation for going into the holy presence of, of, of God, Five times he had to do this as the high priest. And he had to go and offer a bull offering just for his own sin before he could go in and place an offering before the Lord for the people and the sins of the people. And it was incredibly um, significant and it was, it was dangerous because we need to remember that there is a tension all through the scripture between the grace of God that welcomes us and the holiness of God that will not permit sin and pride and rebellion. And the scriptures record and, and, and the historians record that in the first 410 years of the temple, um, actually from the, the tabernacle leading into the temple, that the high priests... Um, were very conscious of the holiness of God. So much so that during those 410 years, there were only 12 high priests. Each of them served an average of 34 years. That meant they were, they were able to go multiple times into the Holy of Holies. But in the second temple, after they had come back from the Babylonian captivity, the office of the high priest had become corrupted. It had become a political thing. 
And during those 420 years, there were 300 high priests because they took lightly the holiness of God. And many of them only lasted through one day of atonement before they brought judgment on themselves. God is holy, and we must never, ever lose sight of that. But he's provided a way through Christ to come into his presence. And so we need to recognize our need for cleansing. That's what he's talking about here. And, and, and it gets, it's, it's cool. <laughs> um, I know, I'm a bit of a nerd, so you just have to hang with me here. I, I told you this is all one sentence, verses 19 through 25 in our English translation. Um, and, and so there are some connections that until you understand the original language, you may not see in the midst of it. For instance, you'll see here it talks about the, the cleansing and then with the washing of our bodies, and then the very next verse talks about hope. Well, there's a connection in, to, to the minds of, uh, of the Jewish people between hope and this mikvah. The word mikvah, um, and I think I have a picture of an, of an ancient mikvah. It's, yeah, there's, there's a mikvah. This is a ritual bath that we, you would have. Um, many of the pools that we read about in the New Testament were mikvahs. And mikvah simply means a gathering of water. Usually it's a gathering of living water, which means it's either spring-fed or it's fed by rainwater in a way that it's, there's a flow to it. Or certainly the River Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing was a mikvah of living water. But the word mikvah doesn't just mean a gathering of water. It also is the Hebrew word for hope. You see, their hope was in the fact that God would provide a living water that would cleanse them from all their sins so that they could be in God's presence. Not just the high priest one time a year, but for every member of Israel. They could be cleansed and enter into that intimate relationship. That's what Jesus Christ has done. That's what we're the benefactors of. He is our hope. And, and that's why if you, if you were to look at it, um, <coughs> excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, here's what it says. And I'm going out of order, so I'm going to mess you guys up back there, but hang with me. Here's what it says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, the mikvah, that's exactly what it means, this gathering of waters. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. You see, there's a connection between recognizing hope and cleansing as coming only from God and not from anything else. Now, this imagery was very familiar to, no, let me back up for a second. What's the name of the book I'm preaching out of? Not the Bible, but the actual book. Hebrews. Any guess on who this was written to? Thank you. It's written to Hebrews, okay? So, which means it's written to Jews. So, they would have been really familiar with all these things. When they see the word hope, they're thinking mikvah. They're thinking cleansing because that's what the word means. And so we need to understand some of that background. 
Now, there's some of those things, there's verses to, which to us seem strange. Uh, for just a second, because I'm probably not going to get halfway through the message, so just hang with me. This was cool to me. So uh, turn to John chapter 3, really familiar passage where Jesus is talking to a religious leader of his day, um, Nicodemus. Okay, here's what it says. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, who was a a religious leader, um, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he's recognizing there's something totally different about Jesus, that God is with him. And then Jesus answers what looks to us like a really strange answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Seems like a logical question, right? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Where the wind blows, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, and it seems like a strange statement, but it's not. Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Here's why Nicodemus should have understood what Jesus was talking about. Whenever a person wanted to convert to Judaism, a a proselyte, they were required to take a mikvah. They were required as part of the process to take this ceremonial immersion into water And do you know what they called that immersion into water? The womb of the world. And in fact, the Talmud, in commenting on a a person becoming a proselyte, it says this, one who has become a proselyte, a convert to Judaism, is like a child newly born. Jesus was using their own language and saying, you must be born again. There's got to be a cleansing that changes your heart, not just on the outside, but changes you from the inside. This is what I'm offering you. That's what this is talking about. When we come and trust Christ, he cleanses us on the inside. He washes us absolutely clean so that we can have fellowship with him. Now, it goes on in in the verses here, and he not only tells us to be, cl- be cleansed and to recognize what Christ has done. But then, verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The one gift that you and I can give to God is faith, is to believe in him. Everything else we have, he's already given us. The only thing that you and I have to give to God is faith. He is honored by faith. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our relationship with God begins with faith, putting our full trust in who God is and what he has done for us. 
That's why just a few verses later it says, without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God honors faith. Maybe you're going through a circumstance where you don't have a clue what God's gonna do and you're stressed about it. It's an opportunity to trust him and to draw closer. God uses our trials as a way to exercise our faith so that we can encounter more of him. We can draw closer to him. Oswald Chambers put it so well. He says, faith must be tested because it can be turned into a personal possession only through conflict. Faith is only faith if it is tested. So when he says, hold on, he's saying, don't give up. It's dangerous for us if we're, if we're really honest. Being comfortable is spiritually dangerous territory because when I'm comfortable, I start trusting in my own abilities and my own resources instead of in God. And then he goes on and he says, not only do we hold fast, but let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There's a community portion of drawing near. God not only wants us to draw near, he wants us to invest our lives in serving and loving others. You draw near, you express your love for God, and as the great commandment says, to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, it is expressed through loving others, through forgiving them, through encouraging them, through building them. And, and we see a beautiful trinity in these verses. He talks about faith, hope, and love, just like the great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which says, now these three things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the action of faith and the arms of hope. Love shows us that our faith is real and it's life-giving. Others can see when, when you love them, they see that you really do believe what you say you believe. And not only that, that there's something about your relationship with God that brings life, and they're attracted to it. Love also hand-delivers the message of hope to others. These all fit together. Now, the next verses, we won't, we won't go there today, are warnings. Because if we neglect to do that, if we neglect to recognize who Jesus is and what he has done and the cleansing that he gives to us that he alone gives. And we neglect meeting together. We neglect serving together. Then we're in danger of falling away of apostasy. And the next verses are a dire warning that tell us to remember that God is holy. Enter with boldness because of the grace of God, but enter with reverence because of who God is. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you even more for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your promise. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Lord, would you show each and every one of us individually how to do that? Show us the barriers that are between us and you right now. Where there is unbelief, Lord, would you help us to encounter that fear and turn from it 
and trust you. For those in this room who've never called upon the name of Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they would do that. That right where they are, right here and right now, they would simply say, Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I need you. Would you save me? I believe what the Bible says about you. And so I trust you today. I want to follow you with my life. For others that already have that relationship, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see just how close you want us to draw to you. Lord, forgive us for treating our relationship with you as something we do on Sundays, as a gathering for an hour a week, instead of a life-giving, moment-by-moment relationship where we are invited to dwell in your presence. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would enable each person in this room to truly taste and see just how good you are. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory.